Sports Voice. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. Good evening, everybody, and welcome on into episode eight of Stats Are for Losers. Alongside my co-loser, Eric Rinston Lobel, I'm Tim Hackett. Happy holidays. You get what you asked for. A full hour of listening to me talk about sports this week. Something that everybody had on their wish list, I'm certain. But, Eric, thanks a lot for being here as usual. Officially a co-loser now. How does it feel? Pretty good, I guess. Would Congratulations. <laughs> say that's a good thing, but I guess in this case, always good to be on with you. Well, thank you. That's kind of you to say. I'm glad that you got back in time, avoided the uh, maelstrom that is brewing out there in the O'Hare and uh, surrounding areas. But all right, let's uh, let's get right down to it. I'm going to stop stalling. Our first stat uh, given to me by R11, 109. The number of points given up by Illinois women's basketball to Sacramento State the other day. 109-107, the final score in that game. Unfortunately, I droned on too much about vague volleyball things, so Ari didn't get a chance to bring that up, so I wanted to throw that out there for his sake. But yeah, 109 points to 107, and I don't want to sound demeaning, but that's in regulation of a women's college basketball game. And I like women's basketball quite a lot, but the fact of the matter is that's just that's not a point total that you see very much unless you're UConn playing against... I don't know, Chicago State, in which case UConn would score 100 points and Chicago State might score 30. Uh, But anyway, that's my first fun stat of the week. Now let's get into something that happened on campus just the other day, Saturday uh, Saturday evening, the final regular game, the final game of the regular season, excuse me, Northwestern against Illinois in a battle for the Land of Lincoln Trophy. Northwestern pulled out the win, was in doubt down the stretch, but the Wildcats were able to beat the Fighting Illini 24-16, the first stat of the week, first real stat, zero losses to division opponents this year. For the first time in program history, Northwestern capped off a perfect division season. No losses to other teams from the Big Ten West. All four losses came to either Michigan from the other division in the conference or three non-conference losses. So a perfect divisional record season. And Northwestern is heading to Indianapolis next week for a shot at the Big Ten title for the first time since the year 2000. Pretty impressive regular season overall, uh, all told, I guess, for Northwestern this year, Eric. Yeah, especially considering how they started. Start off 1-3 and three and finish 8-4, and four, and as you mentioned, undefeated in their section of the Big Ten. Very impressive way. Didn't make it look easy like usual yesterday, but... Uh, they were able to pull off the win. It's surprising to see how they dropped in the poll, though. They dropped yeah. to 21. So I don't think they really considered what the, what the team did pulling Thorson in the second half and not really putting their good players out there. But whatever. Yeah, Big, the, bigger upset next week, then. That's, all right. Let's uh, let's uh, Before we get in, ahead uh, into that too much, let's talk a little bit about the game uh, on Saturday. Uh, my first nitty-gritty stat, 371 Northwestern's uh, total yards of offense. That's their most this season since game six against Nebraska where Clayton Thorson spearheaded an offense to put up over 450 total yards. But that 371 was the second fewest allowed by Illinois this year. So a much maligned defense, which is at or near the bottom of the Big Ten in most defensive categories, except for interceptions and passes defended. 
a team that has struggled to defend the run and struggled to defend against chunk plays. Played pretty well overall for Illinois last uh, on Saturday, just yesterday. Crazy how many things have happened in the last thirty uh, in the last thirty six hours. That's besides the point. Um, Northwestern's offense was not great. Their defense was pretty good, and that's what I think got the job done on Saturday. Yeah, but offensively, my first stat here, the interesting thing, 10, that's the number of different receivers that caught a pass yesterday. And excluding Riley, Riley Lees, who had three catches, no one else had more than one. So in the absence with Flynn Nagel uh, sitting out the game in preparation for next week, hopefully, <laughs> uh, Thorson mostly is the one that that was able to complete passes to a variety of different receivers. So that's a good thing to see heading into next week, knowing that Nagel doesn't have to be your sole target. I guess that was the one of the big questions going into the game was how Northwestern was going to adjust without Flynn Nagel. But honestly, I said this pregame, it's a little bit trite, I, I grant you, but they've kind of been without him for the last few weeks. He didn't have a catch against Iowa for the first time in about 25 games, if memory serves. I just one catch last week against Minnesota before he got hurt very early on in the game. So I can't, I'm not blaming him for getting hurt, obviously, but they didn't really have him for a lot of that game either. So they've had to adjust to life without Flynn Nagel for the last few weeks. Of course, they're going to have to adjust to life without him really soon because he's going to graduate. And so, like you said, it's been a real team effort, I guess, offensively without his uh, effectiveness that he displayed earlier this season. But the passing game really didn't have a whole lot going on for it at all yesterday. No, Isaiah Bowser carried the load 166 yards on only 18 carries, averaged over 9 yards per carry, which is very impressive. But flipping it over to Illinois, their receivers did not have a very good day yesterday. And my second stat is just a lot. That's the number of drop passes that <laughs> Illinois receivers had. And it, it was somewhat concerning to watch because Ohio State receivers are going to make those plays. So... Illinois had, I, I can think of at least three, where guys had a chance to make big plays for over 20, 25 yards that could have easily gone for touchdowns, and the Illinois receiver dropped it. But I wouldn't count on that happening next week. So Northwestern's defense doesn't get, doesn't need to tighten up. They did have several guys out with injury yesterday, but even still, it was a little concerning to see that. That's a really good point. I think Ari Levin made pretty much the exact same point on air at one point, or at least off air to me, that those drops aren't going to happen by Ohio State or, you know, whoever Northwestern ends up, presumably almost anybody that Northwestern ends up playing in a bowl uh, in the month of December. Uh, that's th- That situation is not going to happen. There was a drop touchdown in there. There were a couple of dropped, you know, 25, 30-plus yard gains. That And A.J. Bush had a career day, 281 passing yards, 23 completions, a passer rating over 120. He had a really good day. Overall, I thought he missed a couple of throws in there as well. He was not perfect by any stretch, but – how much better could Illinois' offense have been if their receiver actually gave them something and their and their running backs actually were able to break off some of those big runs that they were accustomed to getting? Yeah, I think – I don't know if it was a product of them coming to life for Northwestern just taking their foot off the gas because they really didn't have – I mean, they had a lot of yardage in the first half, but they only had six points to show for it because of the missed opportunities. But uh, Northwestern definitely did not play their best game of the season yesterday. I think we can both agree on that. But as long as that best game comes next week, it should be all right. So I guess we could stop talking about <laughs> Illinois and move over to Ohio State if that's okay. Absolutely. Um, so something I found interesting uh, watching the Ohio State-Michigan game, Ohio State had 12 penalties in that game mm-hmm. for 150 yards. And we've discussed this a little bit in the, in the past. Northwestern, the least penalized team in the country, they only average 2.83 penalties per game. 
and th- that's 34 and 12 games. Ohio State is 113th in the country. They average 7.82 per game. So that's something that could conceivably play a big factor next week because Ohio State, based on this, is has flags thrown against them pretty frequently. So and Northwestern doesn't really give up many penalties. And if they do, a lot of times they're kind of at the end of the half or end of the game where they don't really mean much. So if the, if Northwestern can continue that trend and Ohio State continues their trend, that could be one area which Northwestern may have a slight advantage in next week if, if that could be considered an advantage. No, I think that's absolutely a really good point. That Ohio State hasn't really helped itself in a lot of situations. They, I mean, only one loss on the season that was to Purdue, which you and I talked about on the show the day after it happened, we were a little bit stunned at the at the time. Still a little bit stunned, I guess, just because of how easily they dispatched Michigan early yesterday. I expected, I personally expected Michigan to win the game. Uh, I didn't necessarily think it would be low scoring because I think Ohio State's offense is really good. But I expected fewer than sixty points out of Ohio State, and they looked wholly impressive in all aspects of the game, except perhaps their defense, which I'm still a little bit skeptical of. Uh, but I think, to me, that is the only area where Northwestern has uh, some hope of winning this game. Ohio State's going to be favored. They deserve to be. But if Northwestern wants to win this game, they're going to need to have its defense show up and lead the charge again, as it's done all season. Yeah, and Michigan best defense in the country gives up. Exactly. Not, not 62 because there was a block punt returned in there, but they gave up a lot of yards yesterday. Dwayne Haskins had five touchdowns, I believe, so... Northwestern's defense not as good as Michigan, so it'll be interesting to see how they fare. But Ohio State also won't be playing in front of a complete home crowd. That's true. Maybe some Northwestern fans will show up outside of the students. Here's hoping. But <laughs> but still, Lucas Oil Stadium's not 110, doesn't seat 100,000 people. So, um, But even still, their offense has put up, they put up 52 against Maryland last week. They put up 62, as you mentioned, yesterday. So... Clearly, they have a very good offense, and Northwestern's defense will be key. I think my my biggest concern is can the offense keep up because yeah. they really have not been very consistent since, I would say, the Wisconsin game, right? I mean, since then, um, they, the, they had a really good run in the middle, but since then, they haven't been – they put up 21 against Notre Dame. I guess you could say that was pretty good. But since then, they put up 14 against Iowa, 24 against Minnesota, 24 yesterday. So they're going to need to put up more than 24 if they want to win this game. I completely agree with you, and that's why I was concerned about playing uh, Northwestern playing Ohio State. I think – and Matt and McHugh and I had a little bit of a debate about this on It's a Fake last week. Uh, I really think you could argue for either side, which is fun, and we kind of did. Uh, I think – I would rather Northwestern play Ohio State. I want to get your take on this, too, because I think they're more beatable, especially on defense, like with those penalties that you pointed out. They beat themselves, and their defense is nowhere near as good as Michigan's. I think they're more exploitable, and so Northwestern will have more opportunities to find ways to win or get back into the game. So I think they're better suited to play against Ohio State for that reason, but I think they would rather play Michigan. Obviously, it doesn't matter anymore, but I think they would have rather played Michigan because – uh, first of all, they've already seen them, but more importantly, I think they're better equipped to win a grinded-out game like that, like the game they played against Iowa just a couple of weeks ago. They only lost to Michigan by three. We're leading in that game 17 to nothing, as we all know. I think they would be better suited to play a team like Michigan, a low-scoring game where you win on a late field goal or something like that. 
I'm concerned, like you said, Ohio State put up 50 points really by its offense against the best defense in the country in Michigan. I don't think Northwestern can score 50 points against Ohio State. So if it wants to win, it's got to hold the Buckeyes to fewer points than they're used to scoring. Well, they couldn't score 50 points against Illinois. That's so. true. Very true. <laughs> but I, I was saying same thing yesterday where I, was, I think Ohio State presents a better opportunity for Northwestern to win just because – if, if Northwestern falls behind against Ohio State, their defense, as you mentioned, is not as good. So they can kind of claw back in. But Michigan is very difficult to play play against. They had the 17 nothing lead that, that faded away pretty quickly <laughs> at the beginning of the season. So maybe they wanted some revenge, but that doesn't really matter at this point. They're playing Ohio State. We'll see. Hopefully they, Ohio State got most of the offense out of their system last <laughs> week. and But you, you really don't know. Northwestern has has a tendency to play up and down to their competition. So following that, they would play up to their competition on Saturday and hopefully pull off the biggest win in program history. Yeah, I think that would be safe to say. It certainly would be up there. Northwestern, though, as Ari pointed out yesterday, has struggled against dual-threat-style quarterbacks. They're really good against running teams overall. Their run defense is excellent, as we've chronicled. But against quarterbacks that can run, they've really struggled. Daniel Jones at Duke last year, not the greatest dual-threat quarterback ever, but he's uh, Exhibit B, I think, for me. Exhibit A is Tommy Armstrong, who'd been the quarterback at Nebraska for you know a couple of years ago, torched Northwestern almost every time they played. And now next week they're going to have to go against Dwayne Haskins, who perhaps is not as a great of a runner as JT Barrett was for Ohio State, but he's a better quarterback overall who very much has the ability to run and Ohio State sent out this release yesterday uh, to kind of go, go along with the great day that Ohio State had beating their hated rivals of Michigan. Dwayne Haskins now Big Ten Conference record for most passing yards in a single season. That supplanted Curtis Painter's mark from 2006. Most touchdown passes in a season in Big Ten history, 41 of those, topping Drew Brees' mark set in 1998, and he's 150 yards away for the Big Ten record for most total yards of offense by a single uh, by a player in a single season, 143 to be precise. That was set by Denard Robinson a couple of years ago for Michigan. And you know, assuming that Dwayne Haskins doesn't get hurt on the first play from scrimmage, there's every chance that he'll get those 150 yards of total offense in the first half against Northwestern. So this is one of the best seasons by a quarterback in Big Ten history. We can extend that to nationally probably. Uh, but safely in Big Ten history, he is a real talent, and he's got a lot of weapons around him to help. You said he broke Curtis Painter's record. I haven't yep. heard that name in a while. No, you have like the, the awful <laughs> Indianapolis Colts backup to Peyton Manning. Um, but anyway, <laughs> claim to fame. Anyway, um, yeah, because Ohio State I think put up more yards in the first half against Michigan yesterday than Michigan had allowed in a game all mm. se- in a full game all season. So he's going to be a challenge, but. And Northwestern has struggled, as you mentioned, with the dual-threat quarterbacks. Even just this year with Shea Patterson, sure. I, if I remember correctly, they kind of iced that game on a QB, a read option. Uh, he had a, several of those. And then Ian Book, that's how they sure. lost the Notre Dame game on that touchdown at the end. So they have a lot of trouble defending that because they really sell out on the running back getting the ball. And when that doesn't happen, the quarterback has lots of open field ahead. So that's something that they're going to have to prep for, I think, if they want to have a chance to win. But they also, on the offensive side, run that play a couple times and it worked because Isaiah Bowser has become a focal point of the offense, so teams think he's going to get the ball. But if you give it to Thorson every once in a while, that 
presents an opportunity for a nice play there. So I don't know. We'll see how next week plays out. You're on the call. Who? who what's your What's your score prediction? Um, I usually do that. But. Yeah, I'm not sure. I do usually do that. I must. I'm hesitant to do it just in general, as I hate being wrong, which I usually am. Uh, I don't know. I've, I, I'd like to know about you know the health of Northwestern's defense as the week goes on. Uh, I do think Ohio State is well-equipped to put up 40 points, 35, 40 points, and I'm not sure that Northwestern can can match that. So it's going to be up to the – I think it's going to come down to the health of the defense and, of course, the execution of those healthy defenders to try to limit Ohio State as much as they possibly can because this is a very potent offense. I'm going to throw exact numbers. Oh, I'm let's do go, it. Okay. I'm going to go Ohio State 31-17. Okay. I'm, I really hope I'm wrong, but – I don't think Ohio State is going to put up as many as they have in the previous weeks, but at the same time, Northwestern's not going to be able to put up 31. Yeah, I think I would probably agree with you. I think holding Ohio State to 30 points, there's nothing, no such thing as a moral victory in my opinion, but that would be a good stepping stone uh, and then you know would make Northwestern at least look decent as they head into whatever bowl they would head to after a loss next week, assuming that it is one. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, plenty more about uh, Northwestern football coming up on the Sports Voice at starting at 8 o'clock. Uh, but we are still got more time here on Stats are for Losers. Let's move on into the uh, wider world of football. Uh, my weird stat, and it's not really anything specific, so bear with me on this. This was tweeted out on Thursday uh, on Thanksgiving after the Redskins played the Cowboys by Dan Steinberg, who writes for a DC sports blog. So bear with me. This is a long this is a long tweet. Um, I might cut it off a little bit sooner, but get this. So Washington is three and three over its last six games, four and four over its last eight, five and five over its last ten, six and six over its last twelve. This goes on and on. Eight and eight over their last sixteen, nine and nine over their last eighteen, ten and ten over their last twenty, and it goes on and on. But it's a little bit imperfect from there. But that's absolutely ridiculous. That it just it goes up and down. And there was a stat before last week that we didn't that we didn't get to that they didn't have a lead change in any of their games before last weekend, last uh, Sunday's game. That was the first time that they had a lead change at any point. So obviously, uh, what I'm implying with that is that. As soon as somebody takes a lead in the game, and it was Washington for plenty of games, but the first team to score always won the game, which is remarkable to me. There was never a single lead change until this past Sunday, and they are 10-10 and 10 over their last 20 games, 21-21-1 and 1 over their last 43. Just the, the epitome of mediocrity, I guess you could say, and they were still in the driver's seat in the division before, on thir- before Thursday's night's game. I think that may change, though, given how Colt McCoy looked. Yeah. Because I think people thought that he would perform okay, but I don't think he met their expectations at all. I know Vernon Davis and Jordan Reed had nice games, but besides that, the offense really had trouble getting going. Dallas looks like they're in a good position right now to win the division. Eagles had a comeback, I guess you could say, against the Giants. (laughs) Giants kind of slept through the second half today, unfortunately. But... (laughs) Dallas, again, looks like they're in a good spot with Zeke kind of getting into his form as usual. Dak hasn't been great this year, but I guess good enough to put them in a position to win. And Amari Cooper had a huge game on Thursday, so if he can continue that, that would be very uh, beneficial for them. He had two touchdowns on Thursday. I want to bring this to Julio Jones, who played in the Thursday night game against Saints. And I was watching it, and I noticed how bad the Falcons were in red zone, and that's something that's (laughs) kind of been a theme the past couple of years. Julio Jones has six touchdowns since the start of last season. 
since and and for comparison, taking other top wide receivers, DeAndre Hopkins has twenty one, Antonio Brown twenty since last year. Odell Beckham has eight, and he only played in four games last season. <laughs> Julio Jones has six, and he's played in all the games. So that's why that's one of the reasons why Atlanta is not in contention for a playoff spot right now. But it's just very interesting to see why they don't go like they don't they don't even throw it to him in yeah. the red zone. They try running it. They try all these plays that don't work. They don't you don't give it to a guy who can who has great hands, is taller than most guys, physical player. Why don't you give it to him? It makes no sense whatsoever. I I can't possibly disagree with that. I I don't really know why it is that every single game. It seems every single Falcons game people bring this up. It's like, well, you know, Julio Jones has eight catches today, but none of them inside the red zone. He's got eight catches for 120 yards, but no targets inside the red zone, and obviously no scores. Uh, it, it seems you know that's a you know that's just a made up example, but it's really not that far fetched that something like that seems to occur every week for the Falcons, and it is pretty ridiculous that a consensus top receiver in the league, I don't think anybody in their right mind would dispute that, but they just don't give it to him in that part of the field, which is pretty ridiculous, and I I, I don't think I can explain that away. Yeah, and they, they lost 31-17 to the Saints, wasn't that close, and they had a lot of mistakes, and I think the biggest one was Calvin Ridley was about to run in for a touchdown, got the ball stripped out of his arms on like the two-yard line, they just could not score to you know yeah. they went for it on a fourth and goal couldn't score they really did not capitalize on any of their opportunities and that's why they lost um, in the in the fashion they did because they could have easily if they converted those they the, the outcome of the game could have been very different but they are 4 and 7 right now i think for a reason it's not a fluky 4 and 7 i think they have underperformed significantly and it, we'll see what they do with Dan Quinn cuz They've kind of regressed. They they made it to the Super Bowl, then they lost in the second round last year. The Eagles this year looks like they're probably not even going to make the playoffs. They did have a lot of guys defensively hurt, so perhaps you can give them a pass there, maybe give them another shot next year. But I think the leash is going to be short on him probably next year if they can't start turning things around. Yeah, I completely agree, and it, it's tough, I guess, with all those injuries. And you know, I complain about the Packers always having so many injuries, but the Falcons are ridiculously snake bitten in that uh, department this year. I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but I watched the first half of that uh, game against the Saints on Thursday. And, you know, as one would do, they just ran through the gamut of all the players that they have injured. So, you know, they're two starting safeties, both of their starting offensive guards, one or two linebackers, one or two corners, things like that. Uh, it, it's really ridiculous. And these are big names as well, you know. So I say two offensive guards and, you know, you probably say, okay, well, you know, do I even, have, you, have I even heard of them? You have. I, I guarantee you, you know, if you follow the league at more than just a cursory level, you've heard of these two guys. Uh, and it's a good offensive line. Still okay without them just in terms of personnel, but it would be a lot better if those two guys were in there. I tell you what. Uh, and it's just, they're, the number of injuries that they have is ridiculous. The Chargers are the other team that seem to be snake bitten by serious injuries every year. Not Keenan Allen this year, but Melvin Gordon has been off and on in terms of injuries at this uh, at, at points this season. Um, and they're just another team that every year there's always like decent expectations. But you know, with the Chiefs in their division this year and the Broncos in the division in years past, and they're always predicted to finish second, and it never seems to materialize for them because they always have huge injuries and. Maybe this is the year they break through that. Philip Rivers started today 25 of 25, which is absolutely a ridiculous mark. The best start to a game in terms of completions for a quarterback in NFL history. 
Well, they're, they're, and they also start off down ten nothing. That's against, true. Against a bad team, but even still, the fact that they were able to rebound, well, they scored forty five unanswered points to to win the game, I believe. I'm looking um, at it right now. So they put together a good performance, and, and I think they're one of the top yep. teams in the in the AFC right now. Yeah, forty five ten today. They improved to eight and three. Probably not going to catch the Chiefs, but in a good position to take that first wild card because, again, this year the AFC really is not that great outside of the Chiefs, yeah. Chargers, and Patriots. And I guess you could throw the Steelers in there, but they lost a pretty bad game today, the Broncos. So we'll see how things shape up there. But um, interesting performances today, I think, all the way around. Yeah, it's going to be topped off with a, a weird game later tonight, or right now, I should say, Packers and Vikings tied at seven right now, unfortunately. Um, my first notable quotable, now this comes from last week, so it's a little bit of cheating, but I didn't see it until after our show ended, so I'm going to count it. It uh, comes from the team that the Chargers beat uh, today, the Cardinals. So this came from the game last week. So Josh Rosen threw a pass to Christian Kirk that went for 59 yards for a touchdown, and he's quoted by Kyle Odegaard as saying after the game, and I don't know if this is a paraphrase or if this is how Josh Rosen said it, but either way I'm going to say it how it's written because I can't say it on the air otherwise. He said, Josh Rosen said, back in college, I learned the MF rule. If there are a lot of MFers over there, go the other way. So he audibled out of a wide receiver screen to Christian Kirk, told him to run out instead, threw its pass to him, went for 59 yards and a touchdown. I, I listened to a fair number of Josh Rosen interviews this spring because he kind of did the, you know, the media rounds before the draft. He had a chat with Sports Illustrated earlier this year, you know, and had a chat with pretty much everybody else. And he seemed very confident. Some people said too much so. Uh, I loved that quote. I thought it was absolutely hilarious. And fair play to you, Josh Rosen. Um, my other quote is from another guy who is verifiably crazy, I think, <laughs> Bill Walton. Um, Dave Pash is one of my favorite follows on Twitter just because of his interactions with Bill Walton. Dave Pash is a play-by-play announcer for ESPN and also for the Arizona Cardinals. He works with Bill Walton a lot on college basketball coverage. Didn't have to deal with him this week. And Jason Benetti, who is a friend of the station and the favorite broadcaster of one, Sam Brief, had to deal with Bill Walton this week. So they had an interaction on air uh, during one of the many games they had called this week out in Maui. And Bill Walton said, and I have a decent impression of him, but it doesn't translate over air, and I'm I'm not at a position where I like to present it yet. It's getting better, so I'm not going to try it. Bill Walton says to Jason Benetti, did your dad play for Jerry Tarkanian? And Jason Benetti says, and I can just see him saying this in you know very plaintive fashion, Jason Benetti says, my dad was an air traffic controller. <laughs> and Bill Walton says, how cool would it have been, though, if your dad played for Jerry Tarkanian? And that was the entire premise of the, the topic of conversation, because that's what Bill Walton does. Poor Jason Benetti. I don't know how he survives. <laughs> All right. Well, before we finish up, we got to throw a hockey stat. Oh, we in absolutely. There. So do. it wouldn't be a real show. So <laughs> how about this? Patrick Line of the Winnipeg Jets got say me. five goals, but he only had a plus two rating. Final score was eight four Jets over the Blues. But interesting to see that he scores five times, only as a plus two rating, meaning that he was on the ice for two more goals for the Jets than the Blues scored. So. I thought that was interesting, but Line A, very good performance. I think one of the most underrated players in the league. Yeah, it's tough. to. It, I completely agree. I think Winnipeg last year was one of the most underrated teams. They got all the way to the Western Conference Finals. They had so many good players, but guys like Line A was towards the top of the league in goals. No one was talking about him. I mean, Ovechkin obviously deserved a lot of headlines last year, 
fair enough. Uh, but Line a is a tremendous goal scorer. Mark Scheifele has been a really good player for years. Connor Hellebuck has been a really good goaltender for the last couple of years. And I agree. I think Winnipeg deserves more love nationally and internationally, I guess you could say, yeah, across the border. I guess they don't play in the most ideal location to get that type of recognition, but even still throwing Dustin Bufflin to that mix. Sure. He was with them when they were still in Atlanta as the Thrashers. So Blake Wheeler was too, Blake one of my, favor- also. One of my so favorite players in the league. They have a lot of talented players on that team. It wouldn't be surprising to see them make, an, make another run. Meanwhile, the Vegas Golden Knights have kind of dropped off since their – I guess fairy tale season last year. They're, I think, one out of a playoff spot right now. So we'll see how things continue to shape up in the NHL. Patrick Line, a five goal performance this week against the Blues. The first time somebody in the NHL put up five in a game since Johan Franzen did it for the Detroit Red Wings back in 2011. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Stats Are for Losers. Thanks so much for listening to the first half of the Sunday Night Sports Block. We'll take a quick break, and then it's time for the Sports Voice with Noah Kaufman and Eric Frazier. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you same time next week. Take care. Every Sunday night at 8 p.m., some magic happens.